wonderful morning this morning. So glad that you're here with us. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse number 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read from verse 22 all the way down through verse number 39. 22 through 39. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 39. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for Acts chapter 2 and this sermon that Peter delivered on that day, on on the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago. The beginning of your church. The beginning of the formation of your people filled and given your Holy Spirit. I pray for us today as we hear this sermon again, as we contemplate it, that you would do a work of conviction in our own hearts, in our minds, that you would convince us of the truth concerning this declaration about Jesus, that he is both Lord and Christ. And that you would help us by your spirit, help us consider the implications and ramifications of this pronouncement. 
that it would have a deep impact on our lives. That we would realize its importance for us. And that it demands a response. I pray for other faithful churches here in Spokane, Spokane Valley, as they proclaim this message today. Many visitors are filling places of of worship and gathering today. I pray that you would do a mighty work in their hearts and lives, the hearers of your word today. As, As we know you have promised by your prophet Isaiah that your word will not return void. As the rain and the snow give life to the earth and it springs forth, so your word gives life. I pray that it would today. We depend upon your word and your word alone for your work. And I pray for those who are Christians, those who call themselves Christians today. Again, that you would do a work reminding us of who we are, of who our Lord is, of who our King is, and of that's implications upon our lives. I pray that you would, again, do your work by your word in our hearts today. And we give you all the the credit, all the glory, and all the praise for it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. On July 18th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was read publicly for the first time from the old state house in Boston, Massachusetts. I had the opportunity to go there a few months ago and visit that site. The old state house in Boston, Massachusetts. They stood on July 18th and read the Declaration of Independence for the very first time to a crowd that had gathered under the mezzanine there. And I can imagine in that courtyard that every person there listened intently to the declaration being made. For the declaration made on that day had profound implications for every single one of their lives. The declaration read that morning had implication for everyone listening. I I can't imagine that anyone was listening with indifference as they knew that their lives would never be the same, their futures would never be the same. That declaration had ramifications. This morning, we celebrate an even greater declaration. A declaration made by God Himself. And a declaration that has implications for every man and every woman that has ever lived. A declaration pronounced by the Apostle Peter 2,000 years ago. And here was the declaration. Here was the pronouncement. God has made Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. That was the point of Peter's sermon. God has made Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. He is Lord Meaning, to him alone belongs all worship and all praise and all authority. He is Lord. He is the Lord of every man. He is the Lord of all creation. God has declared him to be Lord. And he is the Christ, the Messiah, the King. To him alone belongs our obedience, our loyalty, 
Jesus is the Lord and He is the Christ. And this was no mere declaration of man. You see the importance of that. It's it's not me declaring this. It wasn't even the Apostle Peter declaring this. It was God Himself that declared this to be the case. God has made Him both Lord and Christ. The Apostle Peter stepped forward that day and pronounced this declaration to a great crowd, a great crowd that had gathered to witness something spectacular. In Acts chapter 2, we see the setting for this great sermon was the pouring out of the Spirit. The disciples of Jesus had been huddled together waiting, as Jesus had told them, for the promise of the Father that He would send to them, and it had come. The Spirit had come and The effects upon their lives were that they all of a sudden were speaking in languages, real languages that they did not know. It's a great sound, it says, as a mighty rushing wind. And this disturbance caused a great crowd to gather around these men. And some looked on these men with amazement, it says. They looked on them amazed at what they were hearing because they spoke in languages that they they didn't know. They could hear in their own tongues. Some looked on and mocked. Some mocked what they were seeing and called it drunkenness. These men must be drunk. And Peter steps forward and he says, no, they are not drunk. What you are seeing today is what your prophet Joel has prophesied. Joel, the prophet in the Old Testament, has told you that the coming of the Messianic age... The commencement of the end of days, listen, get this, the beginning of the end will be signified by the pouring out of the Spirit upon the people of God. He says, what you are witnessing is this fulfillment of that prophecy. And by extension, the beginning of the Messianic age, the beginning of the end, the coming judgment Joel also says that in that day, the day of the Messiah, the day that the king is acknowledged, he will bring judgment upon his enemies. He will also bring salvation to all those who call upon his name. And he will establish his kingdom with his people, bringing justice to the earth. Peter says this is exactly what Joel has prophesied and this is what you are witnessing today. Well, if this is what Joel has prophesied, then the question is, Where's the king? Where's the Messiah? Who is it? The Messianic age has arrived, and so there should be a king, there should be a Messiah. And that is the question that Peter answers in his sermon. He says, I'm I'm sure you're wondering then if the Messianic age has come, who is then the king? Who is the Messiah? And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, Peter answers the question, who's the Messiah? Proof number one. Here's proof number one. It is Jesus and he has proven it through his life. God has demonstrated the reality that Jesus is the Messiah 
to you through mighty works and signs and wonders that he has performed through Jesus. And here, here's the indictment. He did this in your midst. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah and you already know that. You saw it with your own eyes. Eyewitness testimony, I've been told, is the strongest piece of evidence that you can have in a court of law. If someone saw it, if someone actually witnessed it, what greater evidence could you ask for? Peter says, eyewitness testimony proves who Jesus is. And it's not the eyewitness testimony of someone else, but your own eyewitness testimony. You yourself witnessed this. Think about that. They have refused to believe their own eyes. That's what many people think about Jesus, isn't it? If I could just see with my own eyes, if I could see it, then I would believe it. If there was some kind of evidence, if there was some kind of demonstration, if there was some kind of proof that I could see visibly and touch uh, physically, then I would believe. The thought is that physical evidence, eyewitness evidence, is the basis of belief. The argument is that unbelief is the absence of physical sight. But I want, you to, tell, I want to tell you that the attempt to justify unbelief by a lack of sight is empty, and here's why. It is not sight that creates belief. It is not sight that creates belief. And this text shows this. This is, in essence, the argument of the entire Gospel of John. Have you ever read the Gospel of John? The entire Gospel of John is, is built around this truth. Belief does not depend on eyewitness evidence. Belief is a moral issue, not an evidence issue. Belief is a moral issue, not an evidence issue. If belief was a matter of just needing evidence, then this crowd, this group of people there that that day, they had been given all the evidence they needed by God God had himself demonstrated who Jesus was through the life of Jesus in their midst. And what did they do with this evidence? Again, this is just going across the street to prove that belief is a moral issue, not an evidence issue. What did they do with the evidence that God had presented them? What did they do? It tells us there at the end of verse 23, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, you crucified and killed him. They nailed Jesus to a cross and killed him because of the works that God did through him. God proved who he was in your midst and you rejected him, killed him. But then, in this proof, Peter also brings them into another level of understanding. Look what he says. 
They were not the only actors in the death of Jesus. God had delivered him up according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. That's what it says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This then is proof number two that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only his life, but also his death. Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Get this. Even in their evil and wicked action, they could not thwart the eternal purposes and plans of God. Now here we see a tension in this text between God's action and man's responsibility. God delivers up Jesus. That idea of delivers up is this idea of delivering over. Delivering over to those who would do evil to his son. God delivers up Jesus according, it says, to his definite plan. And yet, man is responsible for their choice to reject and kill Jesus. Do you, do you ever struggle with that tension? Does that tension ever cause questions in your mind? God is Sovereign, we say, and yet man is morally responsible for their decisions. Does that ever create questions in your mind? Well, this is a wonderful text to demonstrate the theological reality that God indeed is sovereign. Jesus was delivered up by the eternal plan and purpose of God. This, This was not happenstance. This was not out of God's control. Their actions were not outside of the control of God himself. In fact, they worked their evil according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is sovereign and yet man is morally responsible for his own choices. Yet, the text doesn't seem to feel the need to explain the tension. I asked a second ago, do you ever struggle with this? Do you ever, how can, that, how can this be possible? God is sovereign, yet man is responsible for their moral choices. Well, the text doesn't seek to explain the tension. Peter doesn't stop. He doesn't stop to explain the theological conundrum that this creates, right? Because as far as he is concerned, there is none. These realities live in perfect harmony in the minds and, in mind and plans of God. God delivered him up according to his definite plan. This proves. God's action towards and through and in his son proves that he is the king planned by God. And yet they killed him. Proof number one then that Jesus is the king, that he is both Lord and Messiah. Proof number one is his life. God's demonstration through his life. Proof number two is his death. God's definite plan and foreknowledge delivering him up for death. And in that death, these people prove their wickedness. Proof number three, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Proof number three is his resurrection. This is the heart of, sermon, of Peter's sermon. God raised him up. Look at that. It says, you killed him, but God raised him up. God attested to you who he was. 
But you took that knowledge, you took that revelation, you, you took that reality, and you killed him. But God raised him up. God raised him up, the text says, loosing the pangs of death. I love that phrase, loosing the pangs of death. Pangs, normally associated with birth, the birth pains. The birth pains that then lead to life. But here this term is used in application to death. The pangs of death, the pain, the suffering of death. What does death usually lead to? Nothing. Death. But not so. Not so with Jesus. Loosing the pain and suffering of death, his death brought forth life. His death gives way to birth. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Why is it not possible for him to be held by death? Because he is the king. Because he is the one God has given as Lord and Christ. You crucified and killed him, but God raised him up. The irrefutable evidence of Jesus' position as Lord and Christ is his resurrection. So get that this morning. What are we celebrating this morning? We are celebrating a declaration that has been made by God that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ and he has proven it by his resurrection. That's what we're celebrating today is this declaration by God about his son. Death could not have power over him. We sang that a few moments ago. It is impossible for the rightful king to be overcome by death because this is what was promised in the Old Testament. That the king, that God's chosen king, would not see the corruption of death. In fact, their favorite king, their honored, most honored and revered king, David, says so himself in Psalm 16. This is why Peter quotes this psalm. Psalm 16, look at it there in the text. Here's what Psalm 16 says. The mouth of David says concerning him, that is the king, he says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. So this is the king speaking about God's preservation of him. This is what he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, the grave. Or let your Holy One, the Anointed One, the Messiah, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You have made me know the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Here David, with assurance, with certainty, knows that God will be faithful to his King. That God will preserve his King even through death. David speaks in confidence. The confidence that he has as Israel's King, that he will not be forsaken by God. He expresses his confidence that God's presence will always be with him, never forsake him. And Israel, Israel would have celebrated this text as a proof of God's deliverance of their king from death. This is something that's lost on us in our society. Understand, as it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. We don't get that because we don't live under the rule of a king, right? We don't understand that way of government or that, that, that type of government. But understand, as it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. So Israel would have rejoiced in this text 
Because if their king is preserved through death, that means their preservation. That means their salvation. Why will they be saved? Because their king is saved from death. As it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. That's why they say, long live the king. Because if the king lives long, so do the people. But if the king is overthrown, if the king is done away with, that means destruction for the people. So Israel would have celebrated this text as proof of God's deliverance to the king and God's deliverance of them as well as God's people. But I love this. Look what Peter says. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and he's still in his tomb, he says. His tomb is still with us to this day. Go look at it. The tomb is still full. David's still there. So what does this text mean then? Who is David talking about? Go check David's tomb. Death is one in David's case. And does that mean that the promise of the psalm is void? He says no. He goes on to explain. David being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on this throne. This is 2 Samuel 7. Most important chapter in all the Old Testament perhaps. He would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David takes his knowledge. He knows that God has promised him that there will be one of his descendants sit on the throne forever. He takes that promise and the promise of God's preservation even through death. And he takes these two and he puts these two together. And Peter says, David is not speaking of himself. David knew well the promise made to him and to his descendant. He takes those promises and he puts them, those together and he foresees and speaks of the resurrection of the Christ, the King. So this is what was anticipated from the Old Testament. Peter is saying to the crowd, according to your own scriptures, according to your own scriptures, you should have expected this. Though hard to believe, it is right there in your own scriptures. The resurrection is proven by the Old Testament scriptures. This Jesus, this Jesus, whom God showed in your midst to be the Christ, that God delivered up, that you crucified, this Jesus, God raised up. And we are all witnesses of this. And then Peter gives proof number four. Proof number one, his life. Proof number two, his death. Proof number three, his resurrection. And then proof number four, his exaltation. The outpouring of the Spirit is the result of Jesus taking his place at the Father's side. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit prophesied in the book of Joel as an accompaniment to the opening of the Messianic age. This signals that exaltation of Messiah to the right hand of God. He says this, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he he ends his argument where he started. Look at what you're seeing. Look at what you're, you're witnessing. This proves that Jesus indeed is the King. The pouring out of the Spirit 
shows that he has been exalted to the right hand of God. And then Peter quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110, such an important psalm, most quoted psalm with Psalm 2. Peter quotes Psalm 110. And this passage in Psalm 110 talks about the exaltation of God's king to his right side. It anticipates the victory of the king, the victory of Messiah, won by God over his enemies. It pictures the king of Israel exalted to the right hand of God and David's own clear acknowledgement that Messiah will be his Lord, greater than him. The victory pictured in Psalm 110 is total The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God, on behalf of his king, will destroy all the enemies against the king. This Old Testament anticipation, coupled with the outpouring of the Spirit that all these people are witnessing, tells everyone in that place that the day, get this, the day of reckoning has arrived. The day of reckoning has arrived. But Peter is not done. He he now reaches... In his sermon, he now reaches the climax. He drops the hammer. You see, the obvious demonstration of the Spirit right before your eyes, he says, is that is meant to accompany the inbreaking of the end of days, the messianic age, the time of reckoning. You should expect the appearance of the Messiah. Well, you know who it is, don't you? Jesus has proven to be the Messiah by God in your midst. Jesus was delivered over by God according to his eternal purpose and plan. God has raised him up, which was anticipated by your own scriptures and witnessed by a multitude of people. And his exaltation to the right hand of the Father has initiated what you are witnessing even this very moment. And that's when he reaches the the, the culmination of his sermon. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, know for certain That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus. Whom you crucified. The day of reckoning has come. Your scriptures anticipated the exaltation of the king to the right hand of God. And that exaltation would be accompanied by the judgment of all of his enemies, all who oppose the king. And guess who his enemies are? You have crucified him. This is the declaration of God. God has made him to be both Lord and Christ. And you are set against him. The crowd is confronted by what their conscience already knew. But now is proven with clarity of Scripture and the irrefutable argument of eyewitness. They find themselves under the impending judgment brought on by their undeniable guilt. They, get this, get the gravity of this moment, they have killed their Messiah. They have killed their Messiah. The Lord and Christ, they have killed Him. But God has raised Him up. And the sign of judgment is upon them. 
So look at the response that the people have there in that crowd that day. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Literally, they were stabbed in their hearts. They were stabbed to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They shouted it, I'm pretty sure. When you're reading the Bible, it's really good to do it with emotion. Like, it's not, brothers, what, what should we do? Think about what's happening in the passage. Here is the dawning of the Messianic age. Which you know what that means. The Messiah is coming to bring salvation to his people, to bring judgment on his enemies, to set up his kingdom. The commencement, the beginning of the end has come. Who is the Messiah then? Well, you know that already. You saw him. He was in your midst. And what did you do to him? You killed him. But this was not contrary to the plan and foreknowledge of God. God delivered him up by his definite plan and foreknowledge. And God raised him up. Because it was not possible for death to hold him. And you know yourself from the Old Testament Scriptures that this had to be the case. That the resurrection must be true. David spoke of God's preservation of his king. And this is what you have witnessed, the resurrection of Jesus. This proves that he's the Messiah. And not only that, but now you see before you the pouring out of the Spirit, which must mean he's exalted the right hand of God. He's pouring out his Spirit, which means he has been exalted. And judgment is coming upon his enemies. And who are his enemies? He is both Lord and Christ, and you killed him. What do you think the response is now? What are we going to do? Judgment's coming. And this is the most blessed, blessed part of the text. Because Peter doesn't say it's too late for you. He doesn't say it's too late. You already had your chance. No, that's not what he says. He says, repent. Do you understand that in that word repent, we, we always look at that as a negative term, right? Do you hear in that word repent, there is hope. It's what shall we do? Repent. There's still time. There's still a chance. There's still an opportunity. Turn from what you've done. Repent of what? Repent of what you've done. Turn from your rejection of the king and be baptized in his name. Be publicly identified with him. Turn from your rejection and your denial and your killing of the king and be publicly identified with him. And he says, by that, you will have forgiveness of your sins. And then he goes on to say, you will then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which again was promised to the people of the King. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will be one of His people. For the promise is for you. Man, can you imagine what they would have heard that day as they hear that? The promise is still for you. The promise is still yours. The promise is yours. The promise is for you and for your children. And for 
all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. We see clearly here that salvation is an act of God calling whom He will to Himself. But did you see who it was for? It was for those people standing there that day. It was for their children. And it was for those, all of those who are far off. People not there that day. People not related to them. I believe this is a reference to those who He would call to Himself at future points and at different places. Places and points that would span the entire globe and involve people from every nation and tribe and tongue. Even people sitting here today. We have been called by His mercy to Himself. And He's called us to repent of our rejection of Messiah and be openly, openly identified with Him as our Lord and Savior. And He has promised us and given us the forgiveness of our sins. And He has given us His promised Holy Spirit to signify that we are indeed His people We are receivers of His promises. We have been saved by Him. This message of salvation is not just for those who heard in that crowd that day, but it is also for us today, if you have ears to hear. This message is also one of guilt, of culpability for the rejection of the Messiah, And it's not only for those who heard Peter speak that day. If it's a message of salvation for all mankind, it's also a message of guilt. That message, the message of guilt for the rejection of the Messiah is for us. You say, well, I didn't crucify Jesus. I didn't reject Jesus like they did. I want you to understand this. And I hope and pray that you have ears to hear this. Every sin, every sin is a rejection of God's authority. And by extension, all sin is a rejection of the one to whom he has given all authority. Do you you hear that? Sin is a rejection of God's authority. And all sin, by extension, is a rejection of the one to whom He's given all authority. This is what Psalm 2 talks about. They have rejected, those in Psalm 2, the nations, the peoples have gathered, and they have rejected the King. They have rejected God, and they have rejected His King. This is what sin is. Your sin is no different than the sin of those people that heard Peter's sermon that morning. No different. Why do people go to hell? Why do people suffer the judgment of God? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do people suffer the judgment of God? Is it because they have broken the Ten Commandments? Is it because they've been bad people and they've broken the Ten Commandments and now God has to judge them. Again, I want you to hear this. No. You will not be judged by God because you have broken the Ten Commandments. 
The breaking of God's commandments, hear this, are symptoms, symptoms of something far deeper. You know what a symptom is, don't you? We have symptoms when we're sick. We have a headache. We have a runny nose. We have a cough. We have a fever. Those are symptoms telling us that there is a deeper problem. You are not sick because you have a fever. You have a fever because you are sick. You are not a sinner because you break the Ten Commandments. You break the Ten Commandments because you are a sinner. Your hatred for God's rule over your life leads you to disregard what He has said. The breaking of the commandments are symptoms. In fact, the breaking of the commandments are graces to us because it demonstrates to us our sin. Just like a fever is a, is a blessing, right? We don't think it, uh, it, it, of it as a blessing, but it's, it's a blessing because it tells us we're sick. That's what the commandments are for. The commandments are there to tell you, to show you that you cannot keep them. There's something deeper going on. And you can't fix it by trying to do better to keep the commandments. That's not the way you fix it. No, it's there to show you that you are sinful and that your sin is first and foremost against God and, by extension, against His King. Why did those people reject and kill Jesus? Because their hearts were sinfully bent against God and His authority. And when one comes from God, when one comes from God bringing His authority, they kill Him. Did you know that if you and I were there that day, we would have been guilty of the very same thing? In fact, in your sin and my sin, We are rejecting God's authority and we are rejecting the authority of Jesus, the Lord and Christ. You see his statement, God's statement concerning his son, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. This means, this has profound implications, ramifications for us. This means that Jesus has the claim to your life. He is the Lord of every man. He is the Lord of all creation. Your life belongs to Him, and rightfully so. He is the Lord, and He is the Christ. He is the King. To to Him alone belongs your obedience, your loyalty, your love, your adoration. He is the King. And today, you have the same choice that those people on that day 2,000 years ago had. You have the very same choice. It's the same message, the same message we've been preaching for 2,000 years. It hasn't changed. God has declared Jesus to be both Lord and Christ, and this you must respond to. To not respond is to respond. To not make a decision is to make a decision. And what, what does Peter say that day? 
He doesn't say it's too late. What does he say? He says, repent. Turn from your rejection of Jesus as Lord in Christ. Submit to him. Be identified publicly with him. Make him your Lord and Savior. Not just call him your Lord and Savior. Make him your Lord and Savior. Submit your life to him. By faith, receive what God has declared to be true concerning Jesus, his son. Give him your life. Submit your life to him. And God says, through his apostle, he says, you will have the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit, which he gives only to his people. You will be his. And you will be a partaker of the salvation that God has won for his son, for his king. As it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. You know that? That's why we're saved today. Because Jesus was saved by his father through death. He was raised from the dead. You know why we're certain of our resurrection? Because he himself was raised for us in our place. So how do you respond to that message, the gospel? Is it one of indifference? As I said at the very beginning, I I am certain that the people who stood under the Declaration of Independence that day listening, I'm sure they were not indifferent. They had strong response to what they heard that day. How can you be indifferent to a declaration that is far superior, far greater than that one they heard that day? God has made him both Lord and Christ. You must respond to that. How can you be indifferent? Maybe your response is hatred or doubt or skepticism. Maybe you're too intelligent to hear and to believe this foolishness. Maybe your sin is great. You are sitting here this morning and you have sinned greatly. As Peter said that day, it's not too late. Your rejection of the Messiah has consequences. But I want you to know that today is the day of repentance. Repent. Turn from your sin, which is ultimately rejection of God's authority and rejection of Christ's authority. Repent. Turn and receive by faith Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you will have forgiveness of sin. Is there a sin greater than crucifying the king? And we are all guilty of that. Your sin may be great, but as we sang earlier, his mercy is more. Maybe you are hearing the message of the gospel, message of his declaration, God's declaration concerning His Son, and you want to respond in humility this morning and brokenness. Today is the day for you to acknowledge what God has said to be true. Respond by faith, humility. I would love to talk to you today if, if you have a response of humility and you say, I, I need to make Christ my Lord and Savior. I would love to help you with that. Please see me after the service or or get with somebody that you know 
here who loves you and wants to help you with that. Maybe you're a Christian and you hear this declaration and it creates in you a joy and a thankfulness. I hope that's the response. A joy and a thankfulness for what He has done. Maybe, maybe you're a Christian and you know that you, you have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, but you have not been living as He is Lord and Savior. You, not, you have not been actually living out that He is Lord and Savior of your life. I would call you today to renewed repentance. Receive this truth as it is a grace for you. And go on in obedience, believing, holding fast, as Hebrews says, to your profession that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this sermon delivered 2,000 years ago. We thank you for the declaration, for this statement, the pronouncement that you, God, have made Jesus to be both Lord and and Christ. I pray that through this week you would not stop doing the work of your word in our hearts, that you would help us flesh out the implications of this truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. To him belongs our worship, to him belongs our obedience, our love, our adoration, our very lives. And I pray that you would work in all of us. I pray for those who are here that are not submitting to Jesus as Lord in Christ. They are in their hearts and in their lives continuing to reject Him. I pray that You would, by Your grace, humble them, even now humble them, bring down the walls of resistance, bring them to a place of humility, acknowledgement. I pray that as they look at their sin, that they would not be overwhelmed by their sin without looking to the overwhelming grace that You have provided in your son Jesus. You know that today would be the day of repentance, faith, and forgiveness. We give you all the praise and the glory for your work by your word in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.